0: What are the consequences of being a disciple? That's the question we're discussing today on The Hero of the Story, presented by The Gospel Project. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of The Hero of the Story, a podcast to help you explore the big story and big truths of Scripture. I'm Aaron Armstrong, and with me, as always, is Brian Dombozic. So, Brian, we've uh, decided to shake things up a little bit. We've uh, modified our, our introduction. Getting a little bit zany. I know, we're getting wild and crazy. But, uh, you know, that's just sometimes what you do. So uh, that's a little foretaste of some things that are to come <laughs> as, we, uh, as we move forward in our lives with the Gospel Project. So today, we are continuing our survey of the life and earthly ministry of Jesus. And we are, as we've been doing for the last few weeks, something that we've said multiple times is that um, in this, what we are doing is we are looking at little snapshots of different aspects of Jesus' ministry. And so for the last little while, we've been really exploring um, his teaching. And so last week, we actually talked about what he described as what it means to be a disciple. And this week, we're going to do something else. We're going to look at what he says is the cost or the consequences of being a disciple. And I got to say, Brian, um, you know, as a, you know, as a marketing professional, you know, which feels really weird to say on a podcast.
1: <laughs> is it like a confession time? Yeah, it feels it's like, but I'm looking
0: at this. I'm looking at the things that Jesus says in these passages and the professional the marketing professional side of me is just going off and saying oh no no these are the worst possible things to say because jesus is not a great salesman in terms of selling the idea of being a disciple
1: not at all i mean we're going to be looking at two passages specifically today from luke luke 9 and luke 14 and yeah when you read these it's like all right there's a large crowd following jesus and it it almost seems like he wants to chase them away he says the exact wrong thing um you know so you think from a marketing perspective and and a marketer would read this and be like oh no no you just violated every rule in the book what are you doing and and that's what we need to kind of uncovers is what was he doing why was he doing that and of course there was a really good reason yeah absolutely the two passages
0: that we're looking at luke 9 luke 14 taking place in and in
1: and around this the, the same ish points in his ministry ish these are two different teachings so uh they are not the same one just in two different places or whatever they are separated by time but yeah they, they both the, the first one luke 9 is probably the latter middle part and then Luke 14 is in the latter part. So they're, yeah, the, the latish part of his ministry, just to be general.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and of course we see, you know, we really see him doing stuff like this all throughout because it seems to be just what Jesus loves to do is to be counterintuitive. Um, <laughs> so in, so in these two passages, here's what we see in Luke 9, 57 through 62, As they were traveling on the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus told him, Foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. But he told him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and spread the news of the kingdom of God. And another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to those at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God.
1: Yeah, so if we pause there and we think, okay, this takes us to that core question that we started with. What in the world was Jesus doing? Why does it seem like he's chasing people away? It seems like he's being very unloving here, um, unkind even. And, And I think the first question helps us understand what's happening. So, is, is Jesus chasing people away? Not really. What he's doing is he's trying to separate superficial followers from real committed followers. At this point, most of the crowd is following him because of uh, what he could provide for them. Physically, food, healing, and that kind of thing. And so there, he, Jesus knows this, that's not sustainable, that, that uh, following him based on those things we can get from him in that regard will not sustain one through life's trials and ordeals especially those that would come because of being a follower of his knowing what's in store so he is really just trying to get on their radar and our radar look i I want you to be serious about this It, it you need to be fully committed committed for the wrong reasons partially committed is not good enough so when you look at this i think most. Uh, scholars would, would say what what's happening here, what we might miss on the first read is that these three things are really excuses offered to Jesus, um, especially the man bearing his father. Uh, I, I think most scholars or many scholars to be maybe a little bit more fair would say that that father probably was still alive. It's not like he was, you know, this is a funeral scheduled for the next day. It was probably near the end of his life. And so this is a longer, Hey, I'll I'll follow you in, in a few months from now or years from now, and that's why Jesus responds the way he did in that. It just seems like these are just excuses people have to prevent them from following fully and deeply.
0: In order to prevent ourselves from from getting ahead of our, our ourselves as we are so often prone to do, one we do have to we do just want to keep keep this in your in your in the back of your mind as we continue this discussion that. Um, this is this is not an uncom- this is not an uncommon thing this is not something that you know was limited to this brief period of time in Jesus ministry um, where people came and said, well can I do this eventually now um, now when we look at the second passage as well, Luke 14:25 to 35. He says, now great crowds were traveling with him, and he so he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother and father, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and comes at, come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, wanting to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to compete, complete it? Otherwise, after he's laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man started to build but wasn't able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he's able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes out against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace." In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Now, salt is good, but if it loses, it should lose its taste. How will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile. They throw it out. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen. That is really tough stuff there because, I mean, we hear things like um, if you don't hate your family, if you don't hate yourself, um, these these kinds of things, those are those are big questions. We're going to get to that one in a second, but he leads with whoever doesn't take up their own cross, and we need to ask, what does this mean? is he is he calling us to pick up a literal cross is he calling us to engage a life of intentional suffering and seek that out what are we supposed to do with
1: that yeah this is um this is a passage that is often misunderstood with the best of intentions uh, again we we don't want to be um needlessly harsh and and unloving and uncaring uh, but we also we want to we want to be true to what is going on here and we will often hear this discussed as many of our listeners probably have been in bible study context where this has happened where you talk about this verse and all of a sudden you go around the room and everybody starts sharing what their cross is and the crosses are usually translated as as difficulties in life you know my cross is a wayward child uh, my cross is unemployment my cross is some addiction or whatever and not to minimize those at all uh, those are difficult things but that's not what jesus is talking about here and you have to think about the listeners in his original audience when they heard cross what would they have thought of one and only one thing a roman instrument of torture and death that's it and so when they heard jesus here what did they hear him say you've got to be willing to lay down your life you've got to be willing to be executed in a in a cruel manner for me, not just die, but a in a cruel, painful death for me, a shameful death for me, what he would endure on the cross. And and that is what is in mind here. We we don't want to belittle this again with the best of intentions. And there is a need for us to talk about those other sufferings that we go through. Jesus, that's on the radar here. But it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If 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 we're willing to lay down our lives, then we should be willing to go through these other things that are so difficult. But let's not minimize, let's not cheapen what Jesus is talking about here. Um, We have got to be willing. Now, you said something really important, Aaron. Does this mean we pursue suffering? Do we pursue the cross? Not at all. Uh, We do not run toward martyrdom, so to speak. Uh, We accept it if it comes to us. So there's no glory in us going out of our way to face persecution and suffering, but there is glory when we stand up with under persecution and suffering, pointing toward Christ Jesus and what He done, he has done and, and the power that he gives us to, to withstand it uh, without backing away. there's a big difference there. Now, I think that is one of the more common issues I've experienced uh, in discipleship settings and in small group discussions about this passage. But there's another one, and it's actually what he says right before this. He, he talks about hating our family, and that is a big question. Does, does Jesus really mean that we are literally to hate our families, to follow him, because that seems to go against other clear teaching of Scripture where we are called to love our family. So, Aaron, what? how do we make sense of that?
0: Well, I mean, the short answer is, is that, you know, if you're asking the question directly, are we supposed to hate our family members? The answer is no. That's because Scripture doesn't contradict Scripture. There are a couple of ways that we can understand this passage, though, that are that are helpful. There are two common views. One is is that our love for for Jesus should make our love for our families appear as hatred. So we're just we're supposed to love Jesus more than anyone or anything else. The second the second idea here is is that hate uh, really speaks more to choice than it does anything else. That we have to choose Jesus no matter what, even if that means that we are choosing to go against our families because Jesus is more important to us. And so this is this was what it was quite likely like for the early believers. I mean, they were, when they were following Jesus, choosing to follow Jesus, they were choosing to ultimately to renounce their entire way of life, um, particularly after the, the the resurrection and the ascension, um, as um, as significant barriers were broken down um, between Jews and Gentiles and and things like this that that happen in the early life of the church um, where every uh, and it's just it's one of those things that we have to realize that there is a cost to choosing to follow Jesus to say these ways of living even if they were good and fine ways of living that the call the call to follow Jesus is something much higher and much better than what we can really then then what we can really ask of our present state
1: yeah we we don't experience this in western culture by and large um, as readily because for us to follow jesus um, it it really doesn't require us going against deeply held convictions and and identity of our families usually we see this in other parts of the world uh, muslim countries for example where you follow Jesus and you are not only risking your life potentially, depending on how hostile that country might be to the gospel, but at least you are being interpreted as as turning away from your culture. Your family can look at you and say, why are you rejecting us and our way of life? And that's what was happening in the early churches you mentioned. uh, The Jewish culture in that day, one thing they had learned well, perhaps too well, from the captivities in their past was that there was only one God. They, they were disciplined for idolatry. That's why they were sent into captivity. And so coming out of captivity, when you get to the New Testament, they were hyper vigilant about that. There's one God. We're not going to go through that idolatry again. And so misunderstanding who Jesus was led much of the Jewish nation to look at early Christians as being polytheists. You're following Jesus as a second God, therefore you're going against what we believe, you're going against your culture, your identity, and so forth. So you would have families disowning their brothers, sisters, parents, children for following Jesus. That's what Jesus knows is going to happen here back in Luke 14. That's what he's warning against. And preparing these people, you've got to be willing to do that. You made the the
0: comment that this isn't something that we really deal with quite as much here here in the United States in, in the Western world. I mean, one of the things that we do have to realize, is, uh, recognize, though, particularly for um, for those of us who are either from or are serving in either post-Christian regions of the West or that which are rapidly becoming pre-Christian guys just as a side note your 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 battle in ministry is not against people who have a jaded view of what Christianity looks like that would be post-Christian and yes you're gonna have some of that but primarily in the next in the next five to twenty years for your ministry is really in a pre-Christian context so people who don't have any idea who Jesus is So places like where we live and work right now, Nashville, even as the bastion of Christian publishing, it is moving toward a post-Christian mindset from a cultural standpoint. A place like New York or um, Ontario, Canada, where I'm from, those are pre-Christian places where if you put a building with a cross in front of it, people are more likely to say, Why does that building have a letter T on it?
1: Yeah, I was uh, before COVID, the last time I physically have stepped foot in a church building was in Connecticut, uh, about 45 minutes north of New York City, where I was asked to go and preach at a a church there. And the pastor and I, as we were talking about that trip ahead of it, and even during, this is one point he was very clear on. He said, you know, Brian, this is not a post-Christian community. This is pre-Christian. They don't know who Jesus is. They don't know the Bible. Um, and so, yeah, that's a really important point. And the post-Christian, there are many of our listeners who may still be in that post-Christian environment where, um, yeah, there may be a little rejection from family. Not on the same level as the early church experience or in Muslim countries we talked about, but there you could have families who are like, "All right, we just think you're silly. You know, come on, you're you're being. Why are you sacrificing your intellect?" Uh, for following Jesus, so there could be some form of rejection or something. But um, yeah, as 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 we move toward more of a pre-Christian, I think we'll experience less of this, but more of the "What are you doing?" I, I don't understand.
0: You, here, here's what I can say from my experience: you will have you will have more hostility than you think you will, and here's why: people who love darkness hate the light. Human beings who love and are enslaved to sin, hate Jesus by nature. And so they're going to, they are going to be predisposed, even if they love you, to hate that side of you. And so the more that it becomes an important part of who you are and what you do, they're gonna rub up against it and it's gonna be rough.
1: Yeah, and what you just said, Aaron, is so critical going back to kind of the big idea we're talking about. And that's what Jesus is addressing. You can't follow me as an aside. Um, I can't be your 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 secondary or tertiary or beyond kind of interest in life. I gotta be primary. And as we do that, if, if following Jesus could be that, in theory, if it could be something that we just add a hobby then we probably would not face persecution, opposition, and so forth to the same degree. Uh, That's more acceptable. But when Jesus becomes primary, when he frames how we live, when he frames how we think, how we feel, how we act, then we will experience this tension and this conflict that you're describing because then we are addressing directly the hostilities of the world against the light. So yeah, that's a really helpful, important point.
0: Uh, let's, let's shift gears a little bit here. Um, we've been dancing around trying to dig into um, some of the insights that, uh, that can help us as we make disciples um, from these passages. Because you know we like to do that instead of just having a conversation sometimes. Yep. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but let's think about it. let's let's continue on from where we are and and let's uh, let's see how the the rubber meets the road, as it were.
1: Yeah, I think as we think about how this passage or these two passages should impact our discipleship efforts, um, I think one of the the. The clearest takeaways is that we need to avoid what I would call easy Christianity. Um, again, I, I'm, I don't want to be ugly about this. For the best of intentions, people will do this, but we need, we need not do it. And what I mean by that is is—is this. How many times do we hear people, again, with the best of intentions in evangelism or whatever, using this kind of approach? Hey, you got problems in your life. Follow Jesus. He'll take care of everything. There's some truth to that, of course. There's some untruth to it. Uh, We've not been promised lives free of difficulty. If anything, we've been promised more difficulty. The truth comes in, but we have comfort and we have power to navigate through those or in those because some we may never get through. We may be living in discomfort, conflict, whatever the case may be for the rest of our lives. But we have the ability to sustain those situations, by the power given to us by the gospel, we, have, we can make sense of why, we can trust that even if we don't understand here on earth that there is a reason that God will bring good through any surger- sur- situation that we, we face. So this, this idea of easy Christian ease Christianity, we've got to reject. We, we don't want to make promises that Jesus has not made. We don't want to give people this impression that discipleship is easy. Uh, That yeah, life is just this wonderful thing without any hiccups or problems That's not what Jesus says here in these passages. And so we we need to be careful not to do What he has not done.
0: One of the key ways that we can do that just from a practical perspective is just think about how do we talk about how we became Christians and so um, you know years ago I used to teach a baptism class at, uh, at the church I was a part of in Canada and Um, and it was one of my favorite things to do, but one of the pieces of it that was, it wasn't, it certainly wasn't untrue, but there was, there was definitely a, a there was a provided structure that, that was really just intended as a framework to help people think through, okay, you're trying to communicate what your life was like before knowing Jesus, what made you turn to him, what happened after kind of thing. Um, but the way that people typically frame that is, um, is the whole idea of you have your rock bottom moment. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, your life is, you know, you, your life is empty, you're meaningless, um, you're pursuing all the wrong things, all this kind of stuff, all of which is generally speaking true when you, um, apart from Christ, you are pursuing the wrong things, even if they are good things, because he is not a part of those things um, for you. So that's just a, that's just a fact that we have to deal with. But there, there's this assumption that there's this moment where everything goes bad, and that's when you turn to Jesus, except for when it's not which is actually a lot of people. And so from my experience anyway, what helped me realize that was actually trying to tell how I came to faith on my very first mission trip to Honduras through a translator because I was given a template basically to, to, to talk through this and my story didn't fit. I mean, I'll be honest. I did not have any. Need. I did not have any known need for Jesus. I was not looking for him. I was not interested. I had no cares in the world. Um, I had enough money to get by. I was doing well in my career. I had a girl who was um, way nicer and prettier than I deserved. So for me, um, becoming a Christian was more of a bit of a surprise for for myself and everybody else. Um, There were some peculiar things that happened in the middle of the story, but what's interesting for me is, is the hard stuff all came after I became a Christian. And so it was family conflict, it was work conflict, it was all, it was just difficult and hard and frustrating and miserable because it was basically, life was pretty great, then I met Jesus and things got really terrible.
1: Yeah, it's usually how it's flipped of how the script we think is supposed to go. Now, again, as you said, for somebody listening, that may be the script. And so don't be ashamed of that.
0: No, no, gosh, no.
1: Uh, But don't feel like because that's not my story either. So I shouldn't and you should not feel like we have to contrive that story to give it validity as if that's the only way God has worked. But it kind of takes me to the second takeaway from this, Aaron, what you just said. And I think we need this passage really gives us ample reason and opportunity to consider how deeply we're living this out. Because coming to faith is one thing, as we're talking about, but this is about discipleship. This is about following him as a way of life. And so this, is, this can ebb and flow. There may be seasons where we are readily making Jesus our priority, our, our deepest love. We are devoted. We're willing to do anything and so forth. But then there may be seasons we're not. And so we need to really think about, is, is there anything in our lives or is there anything that has the, the potential that we might cling to at the cost of being his disciple? Um, money and possessions. Family as he talks about in the passage, reputation, if we're not willing to be thought of in a different way because we're followers of Jesus, comfort, earthly comforts, you know, whatever it is, um, what do we have to be careful of or aware of that may either, well, either currently prohibiting us from following him deeply or that might. And I think it's a really helpful conversation for us to have with others that we're discipling and, and growing along with.
0: And I think as well, there is even this temptation that exists within, uh, really within ministry context as well. I mean, you think about the ability or the opportunities that exist to uh, create a platform or or develop your influence or, or any of these kinds of things. And these are things that we, um, you know, when God gives these things, we can accept them. But we should always be uneasy with with them because they can very easily draw us away from what matters most, which is Jesus. And within those opportunities that exist, there's also the temptation to compromise our integrity, which means ultimately compromising our witness to the gospel. And so whether it's anything from giving numbers or followers on Twitter or book sales or podcast downloads or whatever we want to hold those things very delicately and very loosely and be very willing to give those up for the good of the gospel.
1: Well and, and again it's it's that concern, you know again the best of intentions at times at times maybe not, but at times the best of intentions we we want to be able to you know measure, um, and encourage and celebrate with one another and, and, and that leads us to do something like you're describing for example church attendance you know we want to be able to encourage a church and say hey look God is doing something he's growing our tents but if we're counting people through the lens of wait a minute yeah I think I saw him out in the hall let's count him or even though let's count people twice or three times you know, there's so many different ways you can do that so that we pad those numbers, so we can say, hey, look, we were at this number, but now this week we're at this number. Look, we're growing. And again, sometimes the, sometimes the heart there is just to encourage our people, but we can't do that. Um, let's be real about this. Let's, uh, let's help our people move away from measuring success of a ministry or a church from noses and seats, and let's have them measure it as Jesus is talking here spiritual depth how committed are we and you we we might see a season where church attendance even drops but we're healthier we're growing spiritually and therefore we should celebrate that now in time you should see church attendance grow again as as we're evangelizing and discipling and so forth if your church attendance is always dropping in a long term then that's a problem and something to consider but especially for a short season Attendance does not necessarily equate with healthy spiritual spiritual growth. That's what Jesus is talking about back in these passages. So, yeah, this this is a really helpful uh, time for us to consider leadership positions, how we're measuring things in our ministries and so forth as well. All right, Brian, this is a good place for us to wrap this up for today. So thanks for discussing this with me. And thank
0: you all for listening to this episode of the podcast if you enjoyed it please do leave a sincere five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen to the show. And for more resources to help you focus your ministry on the gospel, please visit gospelproject.com.